The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today it's my pleasure to welcome Heather Day. She is the co-founder and director of the Community Alliance for Global Justice. She's based in Seattle, Washington. And the Community Alliance for Global Justice really has a unique role in helping us understand those components of justice within our food system. And I think it's important to think about those avenues. I'm reading specifically now from the website. It says the Community Alliance for Global Justice educates and mobilizes with individuals and organizations to strengthen local economies everywhere. And, of course, local economies are often boosted by local food security and sustainable food systems. The Community Alliance for Global Justice is a grassroots, community-based, and committed to anti-oppressive organizing as we build solidarity across diverse movements. The Community Alliance for Global Justice seeks to transform unjust trade and agricultural policies and practices imposed by corporations, governments, and other institutions while creating and supporting alternatives that embody social justice, sustainability, diversity, and grassroots democracy. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Is there anything else I should say about the Community Alliance for Global Justice? Well, that is our beautiful, long mission statement. (laughs) I guess just the way we organize is um, currently through three programs. So we continue our historical work on trade justice in coalition with other organizations, and then we have a food justice project, which we'll be talking about, an important aspect of that. And then thirdly, we have the AgriWatch campaign, and AGRA is the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, which is an agricultural development program funded primarily by the Gates Foundation. And since we're here in their backyard, when we found out that the Gates Foundation was funding industrialization of agriculture and research of GMOs and generally supporting chemically-based agriculture in Africa, we decided that we needed to put pressure on them to instead support um, sustainable agriculture there on the continent. So that's our other main work that, that we do. I'm really glad you brought that up because I happened to be in the airport and ran into a colleague of mine who was actually on her way over to Africa, and she had really bought into this Gates notion that bringing industrial agriculture to Africa was going to prevent children from being hungry. And that's really the sell, isn't it, for people who don't know any better? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's what the Gates Foundation claims, that they're trying to eradicate hunger. And then, you know, rightfully identified agriculture as one of the most important places to intervene if you're going to try to make a difference in people's lives in, in any place, but particularly in Africa. But the approaches that they've decided to pursue seem very, very misguided um, to all of us who are passionate about food and, you know, climate change and sustainable agriculture and multiple issues. It seems like they're going down the wrong path. How could a foundation that's really staffed by, one would think, intelligent people get it so wrong? Well, that's, you know, it's a difficult question that we struggle with, but 
One way I like to think of it is, I mean, I think the foundation's heavily influenced by the views of Bill Gates himself. And, you know, who does Bill Gates have access to when he's, I always imagine him at the World Economic Forum in Davos. I mean, the people that he's most influenced by are heads of corporations and, you know, people who are involved in agriculture for profit, but who also claim, like Monsanto does, that they're trying to eradicate hunger. And I think the heavyweights in the sustainable agriculture world just don't have influence. And that's, you know, that's systematically been developed over time um, by defunding and by the academic realm where there's just not the kind of support that there should be in this country for sustainable agriculture. So I think, you know, I think that's why there's a role to play for organizations like ours. Like, and, you know, there's many others, including Food First and Pesticide Action Network North America, National Family Farm Coalition, and many, many other organizations that we partner with that are concerned about the role of the Gates Foundation and, you know, feel that if we put sufficient pressure on them, they'll reconsider. And if you go to their website, I mean, they say they support agroecology and they claim to be learning the lessons of the first green revolution. Um, but if you look more closely as we have at what they're actually funding, it really doesn't seem to be true that they're putting real funds towards alternatives. Right. Well, you've got a master's degree in geography from the University of Washington, and your research there focused on how the free trade areas of the Americas basically was defeated by activists collaborating transnationally. And I wonder what led you to this area of passion and interest? I think I was very fortunate to go to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington for my undergraduate degree and which is a school that is was started as an alternative and you know really has an alternative pedagogical approach just from the get-go and is very much focused on social justice. And I was taught, you know, I graduated in 1992, so I was taught a lot about, I was just beginning to learn about globalization issues there when the North American Free Trade Agreement was being negotiated. And mm-hmm. that was the first activism, grassroots activism that I got deeply involved in. And, you know, that fight against... NAFTA was, you know, was also statewide coalition was formed in Washington and in every other state in the U.S. and, you know, really a grassroots effort to try to educate our Congress people and the public um, about how it was really a radical shift. NAFTA was, you know, a really new direction, really in corporate investment. I'm not so much in, say, it's a free trade agreement, but it's really about giving corporations power to invest in other countries and make it easier for them. And that just led me to want to continue to be involved in those issues and try to confront corporate power and U.S. government's unfortunate role in perpetuating that. Um, so that led me to being involved in a protest against the World Trade Organization. And, you know, I was very fortunate to be paid staff, paid organizer with, with CISPIS, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, when the protests were happening. So, like, you know, was they really able to dedicate all of my time and energy to help organize those protests? And then sort of the next big battle for us was the Free Trade Area of the Americas, which I was involved in through after my organization was founded. And then I started grad school, and that was just, you know, really what I was focusing on as an an activist, and so I wanted to focus on it Mm -hmm. for my degree as well. Well, one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why I wanted to interview you was because there's a product of the Alliance that I just love, and it's a book It's a book of recipes, and it's actually titled Our Food, Our Right, Recipes for Food Justice. 
and you helped organize all of the pieces of this book, of which there are many. And what I love about it is, yes, there are recipes, but there are recipes beyond food. There are recipes for true community sustainability and the democracy that comes from having food sovereignty. So maybe we should talk a little bit about how the book came to be. We're a volunteer-led organization, and the book came out of the Food Justice Project. And the way it came about was that volunteers just had a spark of an idea that, that, that they were really excited about, which was to create kind of a do-it-yourself guide to growing food. Um, and we thought, you know, this was in 2008 or nine, um, and the, there's been a huge proliferation of urban agriculture books since then. But at the time, there really weren't that many um, guides to growing your own food that were, you know, also political and accessible. Um, so we started with that as sort of the seed, and then, you know, because we do political organizing, quickly became obvious to us that we didn't want to put that kind of information out there without the whole context um, within which um, that has become, an, you know, an act, a political act. And so it grew and grew and grew, and, you know, my job is to support volunteers, and as long as there's collective support within the organization for that as a goal, that's how we decide what we do. So there was, there was a big team of people that wanted to work on that, um, led by a woman named Maria Elena Rodriguez, and yeah, just it took, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into in publishing that first edition, learned a lot along the way, but it ended up putting out a call to contributors pretty broad, you know, through our community networks, basically, but we were looking for all kind of contributions that would help people understand what's wrong with our food system and also, you know, what we can do to take the power back um, and build food sovereignty. So we did that first edition, and it was published as a 72-page zine, and then it was really, we sold out of it and was, like, through complete grassroots publishing, not, we never, you know, we didn't promote it nationally to bookstores or anything like that. We just promoted it through our own networks and at national conferences and things like that and just found that people were really drawn to it and were excited about both the combination of, of thinking about cooking and growing your own food but also the politics of food and some of that, the stories, a lot of the stories we were telling were from the, where we are which is in the Northwest and one thing that we liked about the project is that when people picked it up in other parts of the country, they saw that they could do something similar where they were based, which we love. You know, we love for people to cop, cop, you, know, you know, adopt the idea and make it their own. Right. And then that evolved into the second edition, and that's the copy that you have. Exactly. And Eric Holt Jimenez, who is the executive director of Food First, he said so beautifully, recipes for food justice. It's a cookbook that tells the story of food sovereignty, the right of people to determine their own food, and agricultural systems. And I think that right there, of course, piggybacks onto the Agra and the Gates Foundation's work in Africa. It's the antithesis of food sovereignty because people are moving in and we're taking away the right of people to determine their own food and agricultural systems. At least that's the way it seems to me. And then he further writes, 
That means that as well as mouth-watering recipes, which we all love, this collectively produced book also shares stories of the struggle to make our food fair, healthy, accessible, and sustainable. It comes from the movement to feed the movement. Now that is truly nurturing, and I couldn't agree more. Food sovereignty is not something that's it's not a, a definition that we typically throw around, but it's and it's probably something that we you know, we don't recognize that we have that ability to determine our own food and agricultural systems. I feel like we are losing that more and more. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean that's the problem with the industrialization of food systems and, you know, corporate power just takes power away from people who ultimately, you know, Food systems, the more local they are, the more, I mean, that's why people are passionate about farmer's markets and about getting to know who's growing their food because you just, you feel safer, you feel like you understand what you're eating, where it's coming from, you don't have to worry about necessarily like all the different inputs that, you know, more and more we're learning are so unhealthy for us. So I think, I mean, there's this really exciting resurgence of interest in that in, in the U.S. That, and I think in other parts of the Global North as well, that is really heartening and is really exciting to be a part of. Well, in the very introduction of the book, I, what I really appreciate is this hearty discussion of food sovereignty. So there are seven principles that you outline. One is simply that food is a basic human right. And I, I liked, you know, as a dietitian, I always think not just any food. It has to be good food for everyone the next is agrarian reform. Tell me a little bit about how you might describe agrarian reform from a, a food justice perspective. I mean, the thing I often wish I could get in deeper discussions about with people is like not very long ago, the majority of people in the world and, and even here and specifically here in the U.S. were or farmers, right? And now I think it's like less than 1% of the U.S. population or something crazy like that has been removed from the land. And, you know, there's very clear reasons why that happened, but land has been consolidated in the U.S. into very few hands in terms of who's actually growing food, which makes it, you know, all the more amazing that small-scale and medium-scale farmers are still able to survive and thrive in a way that we can support, um, but they're constantly... Um, being threatened of losing their land as well. So something you have to keep in mind. But so thinking about those, you know, especially in the Midwest and, you know, certain parts of the U.S., but really all over those lands that have been consolidated and they're controlled by agribusiness, like what what would it take to reform that? What You know, what would agrarian reform look like in the U.S.? So what, how could we give incentives to break up those farms into smaller scale or medium-scale farms that would be more sustainable, um, that would be growing things that we actually need instead of, you know, a surplus of crops such as corn that, you know, ends up that we make high fructose corn syrup because we don't, you know, we have more than we need and it's subsidized so massively and so we end up making really unhealthy products out of out of these foods that should be providing nutrients for ourselves. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's almost it seems out of reach in the U.S. to think about that, um, whereas I think there's people actively taking land back in places like Brazil. If you look at the landless workers movement, I mean, that's considered the most powerful social movement in the world, and it's people who are reoccupying land that 
um, is not hasn't been cultivated by the owners and and by the act of occupying it and cultivating it again, saying like that she or he who actually produces food from the land is is who should have a title to it and be able to you know they're using it productively and that's what it's a purpose that you know is what it's intended for. I mean, so. And I think agrarian reform looks really different at different scales and in different parts of the world and that we have a lot to learn in the U.S. by looking at the struggles of farmers and people who grow food in, in other parts of the world. But, I mean, it's not not hard to see that the massive consolidation of land in the U.S. is a problem and it's led to the, you know, the health issues that you as a nutritionist are really sensitive to and also just who has access to land and, you know, the ability of, like, more and more people now are and cities are interested in growing food or knowing where their food comes from, but, you know, do they really have land that near city? Do we have access sufficiently to land to grow enough food for people who really want to support farmers like that? We, you know, we don't. It's, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you talk to young farmers, they'll tell you that's one of their three top issues. It's it's mm-hmm. access to land, it's capital, yep. and then it's also access to health care, which is another whole topic for another day. I just want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with the co-founder and director of the Community Alliance for Global Justice, Heather Day. So going along with those seven principles of food sovereignty, there's also protecting natural resources, reorganizing food trade, ending the globalization of hunger, social peace, and democratic control. I want to go back to reorganizing food trade. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean there. So first, I just, I mean, I love that we're spending time educating about food sovereignty because, as you said, it's not a well-known concept here, but I just want to make sure to give credit to, to um, La Via Campesina or the Peasant's Way is a translation from Spanish, who's the international social movement of farmers and food workers that came up with these principles. Thank you. And yes. It, yeah, and, and it really, it's interesting that the idea of food sovereignty really came from the, the powerful movements of the global south, um, and, it's some, and it's an idea that we're trying to, to bring into our organizing here in the U.S., um, and it's kind of, you know, there are challenges just because, like, the idea of sovereignty just doesn't resonate necessarily, or it resonates differently for different peoples here, but coming from a global south perspective where economies have been completely controlled by external institutions like um, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund for the last three decades, and then more recently through the policies of the World Trade Organization, um, the idea of sovereignty resonates very, very strongly because, you know, they, the particularly the agricultural policies of those of countries in the global south have, have have been they were completely deprioritized by um by those international financial institutions making it nearly impossible for if countries wanted to invest in agriculture um on a domestic level they they weren't allowed to so the reorganization of food trade i mean really comes from that that history of just the injustices uh that came out of the like structural adjustment programs um, that were carried out by the IMF and the World Bank and that are continue to be imposed today through the World Trade Organization. And, um, you know, one of the exa- the most obvious example, especially for a U.S. audience to, under- to, you know, relate to is just that we give massive, you know, massive, massive subsidies through the Farm Bill 
through the industrial farmers um, with a tiny, tiny percentage going to small, medium-scale farmers. And the same is true, of course, in the European Union, while at the same time through these international financial institutions and that we've imposed through free trade agreements as well, we, we say you aren't allowed to subsidize agriculture um, in your countries. And it's just a fundamental injustice that is, you know, really at the crux of resistance to free trade agreements was a huge part of, of why people were protesting in 1999 and continued to protest against the World Trade Organization. So that's part of what La Via Campesina is trying to, to get at, is, is the fundamental injustice of those priorities and, and saying that, you know, not just governments, but, but farmers at the local scale should be able to set the policies that influence their food system. Exactly. And that food imports must not displace local production nor depress prices. And I think that that's a really key component of this and really the foundation of this book of, of food justice. So after these seven principles are outlined, then you get into local stories of change. And what I thought was so interesting about this particular book, well, one thing that jumped out at me, of course, was this racial wage gap in the four food sectors. And so you're looking at production, processing, distribution, and service. And in each of those four sectors, if you look at this graph, which I think pictures are really great, I have to say, Heather, I I think that they're... (laughs) That words are are wonderful, but to have words plus a graph so that you can visually see what's going on gives it that much more punch. So just for example, in processing, if a person is white, they might earn $40,000 a year compared to $24,000 a year. Same processing kind of work, but simply being a person of color automatically lowers the amount of money that you're going to bring home. I don't know that we think about that enough. Yeah, I mean, racism is institutionalized throughout, you know, every aspect of our economy, and that certainly is true in the food system as well. And that's a really wonderful study that we just excerpted um, that really helps explain that from the Applied Research Center um, called The Color of Food, and just thought that was an important starting point for understanding uh, that both bringing in a, one of the things that we find in trying to bring food justice analysis to our work is, is that the food workers just aren't uh, visible enough. Like we're often thinking about, I guess, farmers and, and to, you know, a lesser degree farm workers sort of have a little bit higher profile in terms of understanding their role in the food system, but there's, you know, this huge part of the economy that many of us work in or have worked in that tends to be invisibilized um, from, you know, distribution, especially of food, it's not really thought of that much, um, processing of food, um, restaurants, food workers, um, and restaurants and, and other aspects of the economy. So, so that study really helps us see all the different, you know, the scales of from production to processing to distribution to retail and service and then how um, racism is playing out um, within, within those different aspects of a food economy and then help us think about how do we change that. And then you've got race and gender in the food chain showing that women of color are at the way at the way bottom of that in terms of 
of what they earn. Yep. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really important to always be looking at how the race, class, and, and gender and other, you know, other things as well play together. Um, and it's really helpful that they were able to, to pull out those different aspects for us to better understand that in the food system. Well, another section of the book that you've got that I really appreciate, I, I had just been, this summer, I went and visited the Hopi Food and Agriculture Symposium and learned about traditional food principles. You've got those outlined there, and I'm, I just want to run through those. That A recognition that food is at the center of our culture, and if it isn't, maybe we need to reevaluate and put it back where perhaps mm-hmm. it belongs. Yeah. Um, honoring the food web chain, eating with the seasons, recognizing that you know, there's a variety of foods, but they come with the seasons. Eating foods that are close to the earth, local foods, wild and organic foods being better for health. And finally, the one that I, I love so much because I don't I think we've lost this, is cooking and eating with good intention. Yeah. Another part of this book, uh, you bring in all of these wonderful examples, yard sharing, um, interviews of people who are truly succeeding in bringing democracy and food sovereignty back. And it's probably more than we can go through in our limited time together, including, you know, how do you grow food yourself regardless of where you live? What are the what are the tools as well as the recipes? But I do want to give you a chance to just for a few minutes talk about what are the important components that you want to bring out from this book. I mean, we we like to think of it as deliciously subversive. <laughs> we came up with that. I like. I think one of the things that's nice, that's, that's just lovely, and that credit goes to Annie Brule, the designer who put the book together, is that it's just it's in itself. It's it's beautiful. It's really beautifully laid out, and um, and you know includes a lot of artwork and some you know just great design elements that make you want to pick it up and look at it and. And, you know, the idea of the using um, recipes as a as a metaphor, I think, was really brilliant, just that it attracts people who are interested in, in food, and then there's a lot of education that happens just in, in those recipes themselves. I mean, a lot of them are based on the native plants of the Northwest, which is another contribution of the the women, Elise Crone and Valerie Seagrest, who, who contributed the piece you were just reading about traditional food principles. And then sort of along the line of just, it being a beautiful book and that being important in itself is a, to me is really important that we incorporated poetry into this edition and, and the poems are really, really, some of them are just, well, all of them are great and um, some of them are just particularly powerful and are always a big part of our readings. Well, Heather, we are out of time. Okay. And we've only gotten through a small portion of this book. I knew that would happen. I do want to direct everyone to page 152 for the recipe for dandelion drop biscuits, because while we might think that this is uh, maybe heavily weighted towards the Pacific Northwest, I think we all have dandelions in our yard that we should be eating and not killing. Very true. Good point. Again, I want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Heather Day, who is the co-founder and director of the Community Alliance for Global Justice. I encourage everyone to visit the website and learn more. It's simply www.seattleglobaljustice.com. 
org, and you can find more information about Our Food, Our Right, Recipes for Food Justice, with a forward, I might add, by Raj Batal. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Heather Day, co-founder and director of the Community Alliance for Global Justice. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, I want to thank our guest, Heather Day, for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Melinda.